Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I started out looking at every Prime Minister in Canadian history, and we're right in the middle of every opposition leader who never became Prime Minister, but we took a break from that, because an election was called. So right now I'm doing 36 election episodes in a row, to coincide with our 36 day election period. If you want to support the podcast, you can, for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases every Wednesday and Saturday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. I do all of these full-time. The writing, the research, everything. I do it every day, all day. And it's a lot of work. So, any dollars you give help keep it all going, and I'll make sure to thank you on the air and throughout my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Change was in the air for Canada when the 1957 election rolled around. For the previous 22 years, through five elections, Canada had been governed by the Liberal Party. From the time of William Lyon Mackenzie King to Louis Saint Laurent, the party had fundamentally altered Canada through the years. All of that was about to change. The Progressive Conservative Party had gone through several leaders, but they found a steady one in George Drew, who had led the party since 1948. Unfortunately, he would soon fall ill and was forced to resign. But the groundwork he laid would benefit another man, who found himself leader of the party after 17 years of trying, John Diefenbaker. One of the major factors in the 1957 election was a debate that occurred one year previous when the Progressive Conservatives were still led by George Drew. By the mid-1950s, Ontario and Quebec had a growing need for natural gas from Alberta. To accommodate that, Trans-Canada Pipelines was created with American interests, and it would build a gas pipeline from Alberta into the east. A route through Canada rather than America was preferred, even though it was longer and more expensive. When the issue came to Parliament, there was a concern over American interests requiring loans from the Canadian government to deal with extra costs, and whether or not the pipeline would eventually fall under American control. Diefenbaker stated that American big business would, quote, take for itself the profitable end of the project and pile the unprofitable on the backs of Canadian taxpayers, end quote. Both Progressive Conservatives and the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation were against the pipeline, and their plan was to delay its construction through a filibuster in Parliament. Approval on the project had to be obtained by June 6, 1956, in order for financing to go through by July 1st. The Liberal government had promised construction would begin on that day. Knowing what the opposition parties were planning, the decision was made by the Liberals to force closure on the debate, which would force a final vote. With a majority government, the Liberals would be able to pass the approval through Parliament. Diefenbaker would state, quote, It's a dreadful picture. It's one that the government will hear about. End quote. He would add that the government had taken shortcuts through freedom and tried to make opposition members, quote, tenants at the will of the Prime Minister and those associated with him. End quote. The public was deeply divided on the issue. In a poll conducted in March 1956, 33% wanted private Canadian investors in the company and 21% wanted a built financed and administered by the government. On the issue of closure, 36% felt it was justified, 38% felt it was not, and 27% had no opinion. The day before the deadline, René Bodion, 
the Speaker of the House, allowed opposition to debate the matter. He then stated debate would continue the following day, allowing opposition leaders to debate past the deadline. The next day, he stated that he was mistaken, and all events after 2.15pm that day would be ignored. The opposition leaders erupted in anger, stating that the Speaker was pressured to change his mind, with MPs running into the centre aisle, and Major Caldwell, leader of the CCF, going up to the Speaker and shaking his fist. Liberal MP Lauren McDougall would die of a heart attack while in the centre block that day, which was blamed on the stressful debate. Three other MPs were admitted to hospital. The bill then went to the Senate and was passed quickly and given royal assent on June 7th. As it turned out, the factories hired to build the pipeline went on strike and the entire project was delayed one year. But while the project was delayed, the impact of that closure in Parliament was immediate. The Progressive Conservatives used the debate as an example to show that the Liberal Party had become arrogant after so long in power. But there were other issues as well. Many saw Saint Laurent as an old and tired leader with no successor, and the Liberal Party had also seemed to run out of ideas, and the economy was starting to trend down, something it had not done since the days of William Lyon Mackenzie King. The campaigns between the two parties could not have been more different either. Saint Laurent, visibly tired from the previous nine years in power, made few television appearances. When he did, he refused to wear makeup and he read from a script, looking down, rather than at a teleprompter. In contrast, the Conservatives were led by Devon Baker, who gave fiery speeches and had great charisma on the campaign. He would attract huge crowds to his rallies, and he became the first Canadian leader to make a strong impression on television. Diefenbaker's campaign team would be led by Alistair Grossart and Dalton Gamp, both of whom were two of the best public relations experts in Canada. He also had the support of Ontario Premier Leslie Frost, who was highly popular in his home province. Diefenbaker opened his campaign on April 25, 1957 at Massey Hall in front of 2,600 people, nearly to capacity. The hall was nearly filled an hour before the meeting, and things would kick off with eight bagpipers, three drummers, an organist, and a powerful singer. When Diefenbaker did take the stage, he would say, quote, I do not think that the Canadian people are asking for political carpentry for vote purposes. They ask for leadership that will give them a lift in heart and is motivated by a desire to serve. End quote. Across the stage hung a banner that stated, It is time for a Diefenbaker government. Camp would save the slogan, quote, I knew it was right, it was positive. It echoed what we took to be the greatest common denominator of the campaign, the belief that the Liberals had been in office too long, that it was time for a change. End quote. This was a deliberate move not to mention the party name. The party name had become synonymous with the official opposition, so party leaders wanted to focus instead on their dynamic new leader. Posters for the campaign featured Diefenbaker's name in large letters, while the party name was in small print. The goal of the Conservative campaign was to attract the dissatisfied Liberal voters, undecided voters, and new voters. In his first campaign speech, Diefenbaker would state, quote, If we are dedicated to this, and to this we are, you, my fellow Canadians, will require all the wisdom, all the power that comes from those spiritual springs that make freedom possible, all the wisdom, all the faith, and all the vision which the Conservative Party gave but yesterday under MacDonald. St. Laurent was confident in a Liberal victory, to the point where he did not even fill 16 vacancies in the Senate, believing his party would soon be back in power. He would state, quote, 
I have no doubt about the election outcome. End quote. He would open up his campaign on April 29th, which gave Diefenbaker several days of news coverage while St. Laurent was at home during Easter. The Uncle Louis persona was beginning to show cracks as well. In Port Hope, Ontario, while making a speech, children were playing tag and not paying attention to his speech. St. Laurent angrily told them it was their loss if they did not pay attention, adding the country would be theirs far longer than it would be his. St. Laurent also appeared to be absent-minded on the campaign trail, at one point shaking hands with reporters following him, believing they were local voters. As the campaign went on, St. Laurent would abandon his speeches more and more and speak more amicably with audiences. The speeches tended to be more anecdotal with comments on newspaper articles and Canadian democracy. In contrast, Diefenbaker focused his speeches on nationalism and put his passion for the country at the forefront. On the campaign, Diefenbaker pledged to reduce taxes, and he criticized the Liberals for not doing the same despite having a surplus. He also promised changes to agricultural policies, including cash advances on unsold wheat and a protectionist policy regarding foreign agricultural products. Diefenbaker also promised to expand the National Health Insurance Program to cover mental health. The Liberals appeared to mostly campaign on their previous record, which had worked in 1949 and 1953. They also highlighted Canada's excellent record in foreign affairs. The 1950s is today considered to be Canada's diplomatic golden era, and the poster boy for that was Nobel Prize-winning Minister of External Affairs, Lester B. Pearson. Liberal MP George Marler, in a radio address, would state, quote, You will wonder, as I do, who in the Conservative Party will take the place of the Honourable Lester Pearson, whose knowledge and experience of world affairs has been put to such good use in recent years, end quote. The Progressive Conservatives, in contrast, also criticized Pearson over his role in the Suez Crisis, for which he won the Nobel Peace Prize, stating that Canada had let Britain down. Diefenbaker also made the pipeline debate a major issue on the campaign, referring to it more often in the campaign than he did any other issue. At first, the Liberals ignored this, but Diefenbaker continued to press it, and it gained resonance with voters, forcing the Liberals to devote more time to it, including St. Laurent making it a major part of his final English television address as Prime Minister. One week to the election, and everyone is in the prediction business. But at the Canadian Institute of Public Opinion in Toronto, they draw up their forecasts by scientific methods. One of their recent surveys suggests that 63% of the population is certain to vote this time, as against 59% last time. Trends like these are discovered by interviewing carefully selected samples of the population. From this office, questionnaires go out which are designed to pick up the shifting currents of popular opinion. When the answers come in, they're classified and recorded on cards by an automatic machine. New Canadian quarters like this are a common scene across the country today. They house many of the more than half a million immigrants who have entered Canada since the last election. Some still speak little English, and not all are yet eligible to vote. Many are refugees from totalitarianism are still unfamiliar with a democratic process. These, in particular, will want to exercise their vote as a symbol of their newfound freedom. They are bound to influence the outcome. Party organizations face another aspect of the unknown vote, the young people taking part in their first or second election. These potential voters are very much in the minds of the young candidates. Lawyer Ray Tower, the 29-year-old liberal candidate for Toronto's York East, gives last-minute tactical instructions to a group of his canvassers. Themselves mainly young people, they work in one of the largest ridings in Canada, 
Among its 80,000 people, there are about 7,000 new voters, many of them young married couples. On this call, the candidate has with him Roy Power, president of the National Young Liberals of Canada, likewise in the under-35 group. In another Toronto riding, York Scarborough, the accent is again on youth. The progressive conservative candidate Frank McGee is 31. The population of the constituency has more than doubled since the last election, and a high proportion of the 100,000 newcomers are young families. Mr. McGee, a businessman, taps every possible means including the Tea Party, of pleading his cause. Now, another twist to the phenomenon of youth in politics. Andrew Bruin, QC, is backed by his 20-year-old son, John, in the fight to win Toronto Davenport for the CCF. And organizing the campaign, Stephen Lewis, who, at 19, is unable to vote. A social credit campaign car brings the candidates for Toronto's York South riding on a vote-getting mission. Teamed up with 32-year-old Sloan Smith, his young wife. Like young men of all parties in this election, Mr. Smith is convinced of a great future for Canada. And he hopes to see more young people take a part in the affairs of the nation. For Mr. Smith, as other candidates, only a few more days to campaign. And how will voters old and new decide? Mr. Smith and the rest of the 860-odd candidates knew the answer to that one, they would still face a staggering imponderable. In the last election, the Canadians failed to vote at all. Overall, Diefenbaker spent 39 days on the campaign trail, while St. Laurent spent 11 days less than that. And while Diefenbaker made whistle-stop tours in small towns throughout Canada, St. Laurent only visited large cities. On June 6, the parties crossed paths in Woodstock, Ontario. While St. Laurent drew 200 people earlier in the day, Diefenbaker drew a crowd of over 1,000 in the evening, even with arriving one hour late. Television, as I mentioned, was a major component of the election for the first time, and CBC gave the four major parties free airtime for political statements. Of all the leaders, Diefenbaker made the best impression and was the most open to whatever techniques would help him on the air, including wearing makeup. Uh, my fellow Canadians, uh, this is a moment of deep dedication rather than of elation. And my first words must be of gratitude and appreciation for the wonderful support that was given today to conservative candidates in every part of our country. As far as I'm concerned, a simple thank you is about all I can say at this time coupled with my thanks to the many thousands of Canadians who, without regard to party consideration, have joined with us today because of the fact that they have in common with us an abiding belief in the preservation of the parliamentary system. At the moment, no one knows the final results or what they will be. But should it be that we are called upon to discharge the tremendous responsibilities that are inherent in the government of this country. I can give you this pledge, my fellow Canadians, that in everything that I will do as the leader of this party, the aim and the purpose will be the achievement of those things 
which represent the yearnings and the hopes of my fellow Canadians. Here is the Prime Minister of Canada, the Right Honorable Louis Saint-Laurent. Fellow Canadians, I have just returned from the heart of my constituency of Quebec East, where I went down, as I have always done on past occasions, uh, to thank the electors of that uh, historic constituency for the testimonial of confidence uh, that they gave me by the vote that they registered at the polls today. I don't know just exactly what the majority is, but I understand that it is a very substantial majority, and it is in line with the majority that uh, the uh, citizens of Quebec also gave the two official candidates of the Liberal Party in this election, uh, Mr. Frank Power in uh, Quebec uh, South and Mr. Bejan in Quebec West. Uh, no one, of course, can claim to be a prophet in his own country, but it is very satisfactory to see by the results of the, the election of today that one can expect to have a large number of friends in the city in which it has been his privilege to live for the last 50 years. And uh, I, of course, told them that there were rather uh, indefinite or conflicting reports coming in from the result, about the result of the election in other parts of the country, but that it was too soon to come to any conclusion as to what might be the best course to follow within the next few days in the interest of the Canadian people and not in the interest of any particular uh, political party of uh, a, a portion of the Canadian public. In Diefenbaker's final campaign speech in Nippewan, Saskatchewan, he concluded it by saying, quote, On Monday, I'll be Prime Minister, end quote. He was right. On the June 10, 1957 election, Diefenbaker surprised everyone by leading the Progressive Conservatives to an election win, gaining 61 seats to finish with 112. The Liberals suffered a terrible collapse, falling 64 seats to become the official opposition. The Cooperative Commonwealth Federation would win 25 seats, while the Social Credit Party picked up 19. The Progressive Conservatives defeated the Liberals in every province except Newfoundland, Quebec, and Saskatchewan. In Ontario, the Progressive Conservatives won 61 seats while the Liberals took 21. In Quebec, the Liberals still dominated, picking up 62 seats, but the Conservatives did improve with 9 seats. The Progressive Conservatives won every seat in Prince Edward Island and almost every seat in Nova Scotia. The CCF once again gained most of its support in Saskatchewan, while the Social Credit Party dominated in Alberta. Diefenbaker would return home to Prince Albert the day after the election at the head of a two-mile-long motorcade. There, he was met by 1,500 people who were cheering him on for his election win. And he would say later that day, quote, My friends, I want you to know my greatest moment of this day was when I heard you had re-elected me by such a tremendous majority. End quote. In the middle of saying that, Diefenbaker was reported to have taken 10 seconds to compose himself as tears began to well in his eyes. Later that night, for his first speech to a nationwide television audience, he arranged for his 84-year-old bedridden mother in Saskatoon to have a television in her room, and he would say, quote, It will be a great night for her. I don't want her to miss it. End quote. In his official statement on the election win, Diefenbaker would state, quote, It is interesting, and indeed it is true historically, that in times of great need, 
this nation does turn to the Conservative Party. Conservatism has risen once again to the challenge. I shall keep the promises that I made. I shall maintain the principles of this party. End quote. I'm standing in front of the stucco and wood home, 50 years old, in which Prince Albert's favorite son and hero has lived for the past 10 years. Throughout the past week, this home has been the focal point of Mr. Diefenbaker's many activities. So it's fortunate that he moved to this larger house after living for many years in a small bungalow just a few blocks away. The whole city has been buzzing with excitement of the election results. Normally, it's a quiet, friendly place where the northern end of the rail lines terminate. It's a transportation center for the vast storehouse of minerals and timber further north. On Prince Albert's Central Avenue, Mr. Diefenbaker can hardly move an inch without meeting old friends and well-wishers. Old folk and young folk alike come in for a few kind words from this 61-year-old conservative leader. One of Mr. Diefenbaker's most frustrating experiences this week was trying to get his hair cut. He finally managed to get into a barber's chair, and his old friend Dave Fairweather went to work on him. At his home, the telephone has been ringing for 24 hours a day. Long-distance phone calls have been coming in from all over Canada, and Mrs. Diefenbaker has answered many of them. Thousands of telegrams have been received, and there's a constant stream of messengers coming up to the house to deliver them. There's been hardly any time for the Diefenbakers to have a moment to themselves, but they've obviously enjoyed the hectic activities. Before proceeding to Ottawa, his last few hours in Prince Albert saw Mr. Diefenbaker spending as much time as possible with the townspeople who'd voted for him. Mr. Diefenbaker will have to spend most of his time now in Ottawa, but it's certain he'll come back when he can to Prince Albert, a place he dearly loves. This is Don MacDonald in Prince Albert. While Diefenbaker may not have doubted that he would be Prime Minister, many around him were still surprised by the outcome. Camp would say, quote, None of us ever thought of the possibility of a minority government, a Diefenbaker minority government, end quote. There were a few odd occurrences in this election as well. In the St. Paul's riding in Toronto, four Liberal workers were convicted of adding 500 names to the electoral register. MP James Rooney was not charged, but the judge believed it could not have been done without his knowledge. Other violations included possession of ballots, adding names to voting registers, and opening of ballot boxes was found in 12 ridings, and 12 people would be convicted in 5 of those ridings. In the Yukon, the Yukon Territorial Court voided the election, stating that enough ineligible people voted to impact the outcome. Eric Nielsen would win the redone election, beginning a long political career that would last 30 years. He also had a brother, somebody you may know, Leslie Nielsen. When a poll was held to find out why people abandoned the Liberals, the results were 5% because of the Suez Crisis, 38% because of the pipeline debate, 28% because of inadequate increases in old age pensions, and 30% because it was felt Canada needed a change. After the election loss, St. Laurent would resign as leader of the Liberal Party on September 5th and be replaced by Lester B. Pearson. Pearson would sum up the loss, stating, quote, We were coming to the end of our career as a Liberal Party in power. We'd been in the government for over 20 years. People were tired of us, which was inevitable and natural. 
we were vulnerable to any pressure against us. We were more likely to be hurt by our own mistakes than if we had made them 10 or 15 years earlier. End quote. But perhaps the best look at why the Liberals lost comes down to Joan and David Watts, who were profiled as two young voters by McLean's. They would state, quote, We thought it was time for a change. End quote. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the 1957 election. Tomorrow, we'll be looking at the 1958 election. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Again, if you like, you can support the podcast through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. And I'd like to say thank you to all of my wonderful patrons. And if I mispronounce any names, I do apologize. Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, one anonymous person who I really appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, and Iris Gray. Information from Dynasties and Interludes, Biography, Wikipedia, Ottawa Citizen, The Vancouver Sun, Calgary Herald, and Maclean's Magazine. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.